0: Good morning, Rivertown community. Church, uh, it's so great to be with you this morning. Whether you're watching online or you're here with us in the room this morning for the first time in a long time, we are so glad that you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, by the way, my name is Gerald Fadiomi. Whether you're new or or you're just coming back after a long time, I love this church. I consider it a second home. And so it's so great to be back with you uh, this morning. You know, the last time I was here was actually just a few weeks before the pandemic hit, before everything kind of shut down. And a lot has changed in my life since the last time that we were together. Now, the pandemic has changed all of our lives in pretty significant ways, um, but that's not really what I'm talking about at this particular moment. The thing that I'm talking about that has changed my life in the last five months are these two little girls right here. Wesley Grace and Zoe Faith Fadiomi. Come on, somebody. I mean, those are some cute babies. Um, here's the thing. I, I really don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but what I want to do is hang a sign over the highway that says, world's cutest babies here and see if I can make it a tourist attraction at my house. Now, I didn't have much to do with that. Uh, those are, that was my wife's responsibility. Those are my wife's jeans uh, that made them come out as beautiful as they did. But these little girls have been rocking my world. I have not slept in the last five months. It's been crazy for us. And as I say that about our family and I say that about my story, I just imagine um, for all of us, we find ourselves in that boat right now. Maybe it's not sleepless nights for you. Maybe it's not five month old twin baby girls that are keeping you up at night, but this year has been crazy for all of us. And the pandemic has affected our world in a pretty dramatic way. And so I don't know if you're coming into the room this morning or if you're watching online feeling tired, feeling frustrated, feeling upset, angry, feeling like you're ready to give up due to everything that's happening in our world. But the good thing about us being together this morning is simply this, that when the people of God gather, everything can change. That when we get together, whether it's online or in a room, the presence of God is with us. And so we can walk out of the room or log off the internet more encouraged, more excited, more hopeful for what God wants to do in our life. And so that's my hope and my prayer for us this morning, that we would experience the presence of God. In a radical, radical way. Let me pray for you and we'll jump into our message. Father, thank you so much for these moments that we get to share. Thank you that while things feel like they're crazy, you are still sovereign, you're still in control, and you're still on the throne. And so, Father, I pray that in these few moments with all of the craziness around us, we may be able to just slow down for a moment to hear from you. And that you would speak something into our hearts that would allow us to leave here differently than the way that we came in. Father, these moments are yours. We give them to you. So would you speak now and do what only you can do. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I hate these. No, okay, let me, let me explain what I mean. Um, I actually really love lemons. I love lemon in my water. Uh, my wife has this lemon essential oil. I love putting a little drop of that in my water as well. I love lemonade, especially from Chick-fil-A. Come on, somebody, that is Jesus's lemonade. Uh, I love lemon meringue pie. I love lemon slices in my water. Like I love lemons, but I hate them all at the same time. It's just love-hate. Relationship. Now, that might be a little bit confusing, so let me set the scene for you to give you a little bit of context to understand this relationship that I have with lemons. For you to get this, I need to take you back to 19-year-old Gerald. Uh, there was this girl that I was interested in, and uh, I decided that I was going to ask her out. And so I went back to my house. It was a Thursday. I was going to ask her out on that Friday. And, and so I started practicing my lines and trying to prepare myself to make the big ask. I remember standing in the mirror going, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. She's a Christian. I'm not really sure what I believe about God, but I know she's a Christian. And so I got to make sure I approach her as a Christian. So maybe I'll just come up to her and I'll say something like, I don't know. Um, hey, me and my boys were having Bible study last night. And I was reading through the book of Numbers. I just realized... I don't have yours. Let me get them digits, girl. Come on, hook me up, hook me up. No, I, I couldn't do that. That wasn't going to work. Um, so I thought, okay, maybe instead of doing that, maybe I'll say something like, like, hey, you know, in the days of Noah, you and I would be a pair. Yeah, that, that obviously wasn't going to work either. And so after practicing a bunch of different lines, I decided that I would just talk to her like a normal person. And so Friday comes and I walk up to her and I go, hey, um, you know, I think you're really great. And I was just wondering if you'd be up for going out sometime. She said yes. And So I go home and I start making plans for the date. Now, knowing that she was a Christian and, again, I was still trying to figure out what I believed about God, I figured the best possible first date would be church. Hey, let's go to church together and we'll have a great time. Now, this particular Sunday that we were going to go to church wasn't just any old Sunday. It was Easter Sunday. And that was going to be our first date. Her family had a tradition that they would do things Sunday night for Easter. And so my plan was to pick her up Sunday morning for church. And then we'd go to lunch together and then I'd bring her back home and it would be an incredible Sunday. I'd start looking through my closet trying to pick out my outfit because, of course, you know, got to make sure that I'm looking good from head to toe. The problem in this scenario, though, was that the churches I'd grown up up going to, you couldn't just wear like what I'm wearing right now. It was suit and tie to the T every single Sunday. And so I start looking through my closet, trying to figure out what suits I own. And the problem for me in this moment is that I really only own one suit. And it's my junior year prom suit. This is an all white, three-piece, pinstripe suit. Y'all, I put this thing on and I'm just looking like the most attractive zebra you have ever seen in your entire life, right? But I'm ready for the date. Sunday morning comes, I put on my zebra suit, get in the car, I drive over to pick her up. Knock on the front door, she comes out. She tells me how good I look, of course. We get in the car together and we proceed to drive down the highway. Now, I take off down the highway and I was going really fast because I was trying to be impressive to her. But as I'm driving down the highway, I start hearing this sound. And it slows. And slows. And slows. And before you know it, I'm on the side of the highway, smoke coming from the hood of my car, outside in my all white three piece suit, looking under the hood, trying to figure out what's going on, knowing that I have no idea what's under the hood to begin with. And I am so frustrated because I'm on a first date and my car has now broken down. I remember distinctively in that moment, looking up to the heavens, not even being a Christian and asking God this question, Why, why is this happening to me? Why now? Like God, come on, are you kidding me? I was trying to go to church. Like why is this happening to me? You see, what had happened in this moment was that I'd bought lemon. Well, it wasn't just that I bought a lemon, it was that I was handed a lemon by life. And it led me to the side of the road, asking the question, Why? Now, what's worse than that is that the contract that I'd signed on this car said that if anything went wrong in the first 30 days, I could return it. And this was day 31. Life had handed me a lemon. You know, the interesting thing about that story is that's not the first time that I found myself in this situation. I mean, not stranded on the side of the road in an all-white three-piece suit, but where I found myself in a moment where I was asking God the question why due to a circumstance that had come my way. I remember asking that question in the third grade when my dad left. My Mom and dad were never married. My dad was a part of my life for a little while but by third grade, he was gone. And I remember going to basketball games and football games and and playing in in different sports and activities and everyone else's dad was in the stands cheering. Mine was nowhere to be found. I asked myself the question why? Remember asking that question my junior year in high school when my mom went to jail for aggravated stalking. Remember reading through her paperwork and realizing that my mom was diagnosed with schizophrenia that I never knew up until my junior year. And I remember in that moment thinking the night my mom went to jail, God, I already don't have a dad. You're gonna take my mom away from me too? Why? I remember asking this question as a club promoter before I became a Christian. And in the third year of doing that, having three friends who were murdered and one friend commit suicide and looking all around me, asking why is the lifespan of my friends shorter than everyone else that I know? Why is this happening to me? Or if I wanna go a little bit more recent, I think of March 18th, 2020, the day that my identical twin baby girls were born. And I think back to where I was the moment that they came onto the planet earth i just come back from a work trip that Friday. It was a Friday that everything was kind of blowing up with coronavirus and thought I was in the clear that I made it back and everything was good. But by Monday, I found myself curled up in a ball in my guest bedroom, feeling terrible. That night, I decided to drive myself down to the ER to get the coronavirus test. They administered the test and tell me it'll be three days before I get the results back. So I drive back home, quarantine myself in my guest bedroom. My wife the next day decides to drive down to get the test as well. And when she drives down to get the coronavirus test, they tell her that she's 90% effaced and that the babies are on the way. They start making plans for an emergency C-section. And so she calls me and I speed down the highway to try to get to her and be with her. When I get to the hospital, they tell me that I can't come in because I have a pending coronavirus test. And so I go back home. My girls are born as I'm standing in the backyard, weeping, missing the birth of my very firstborn kids. To make matters worse, my wife didn't even see them when they were born because she had a pending coronavirus test as well. It would be two full days before we could see our baby girls. And if that wasn't bad enough, we would later get a call from the NICU after we found out that we were negative and could see them, telling us that the NICU had been shut down for an additional three weeks. In the first month of our girls' life, we saw them for a grand total of four days. Why? Why is this happening to me? It's a question that most of us tend to ask when we're handed lemons by life. And maybe you found yourself asking yourself that question this year. Maybe it was the loss of a loved one, someone that you cared dearly about, or maybe someone that you wish you could have apologized or or said something to before they were gone, and it just happened out of nowhere. You find yourself asking yourself the question, why? Maybe it was job loss this year. Maybe it was due to coronavirus, or maybe it happened before the pandemic, and now the pandemic has made it even more difficult to find a job, and you're asking yourself the question, why is this happening to me? Maybe it was something that was done to you or said to you when you were a child, and you're still holding the wounds and the weight of the thing that that person did or said, and you don't know what to do with it, but every time you think back to that moment or back to that conversation, you just ask yourself the question, why? Why did it have to be? Me. If you're a student watching, maybe it's a divorce that your parents are going through right now. You look at everyone else's family and it seems so perfect, but, but yours is falling apart and you're going, why? Or maybe you're an adult who's gone through a divorce or you're going through a divorce and you're going, why is this happening? Why didn't I just do things differently? Why couldn't they see it the way that I see it? Why me? Maybe it's just the way that this season is affecting you maybe the way it's affecting your mental health, maybe the way it's affecting your relationship with with the people around you. I don't know what the circumstance is for you, but I would imagine that if we could sit down and have a conversation that every single one of us is holding at least a lemon, if not a handful, that we've all been handed lemons by life. And so the question for us this morning is really simple. It's this, what do we do with them? What do we do with the lemons that have been handed to us? Or for some of us, what do we do with the lemons that it feels like life is throwing at us full speed? I can tell you what most of us tend to do. What most of us do is we ignore it. We just put our heads down and we keep trying to push through and we just act like it's not there. Or others of us, instead of ignoring it, we we just dismiss it. It's not that we don't acknowledge the fact that it's there. We just tell ourselves it's not that big of a deal. I know I did that for most of my life as it related to my dad. I said, oh, I don't need him. I'll show him. He'll, he'll be so upset that he wasn't a part of my life. I'll show him what he missed. And for most of my life, I went, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. But the reality is it was a big deal. And it was affecting my life in some serious ways. And maybe that's the category you find yourself in this morning. That there's a lemon in your life that you just dismissed and, and made it not to be such a big deal when it's really affecting you in some pretty Significant ways, or maybe you fall into this third category, and I would imagine this is the category that most of us find ourselves in when lemons are handed to us. It's the category that I was in on the side of the highway that day. It's just the why category, the category of questioning, the category of wondering, the category that looks to God and goes, Why me? I'll tell you this. Um, I haven't learned a lot in 30 years of life, but the one thing that I have learned is that why is very rarely the right question to ask in a season of adversity. That when we've been handed a lemon by life, why is very rarely the right question to ask because that question, why, is often the question that stands in the way of us seeing and experiencing what God may want to do in and through us in this season. Why is very rarely the right question to ask. We've all heard this expression, right? When life gives you lemons... Make lemonade. The problem is no one has ever told us how, and so we're left asking the question, why? My goal for this morning is simple. It's to maybe give you a recipe to turn the lemons of your life into the sweet lemonade that we all enjoy from Chick-fil-A. It's to maybe give you the recipe to take the hardest moments, the hardest seasons of your life and turn them into your greatest strength. My goal for this morning is to show us how to take the lemons of our life and make lemonade. I actually wrote a book about this. It's called When Life Gives You Lemons. And if I had enough time, I'd dive into all of the content from the book. I don't. So I want to do three things in the time that we have left together this morning. One, I want to tell you a story of a man who knows exactly what it feels like to face adversity. A man who knows exactly what it's like to have lemons handed to him by life. Secondly, I want to read to you a statement from the end of his life, a profound yet absurd statement that he makes that I believe will challenge all of us this morning. And then lastly, I want to give you three questions. Three questions that I believe are the keys to turn the lemons of your life to lemonade. The story that we're going to look at this morning is the story of Joseph. If you've grown up in church, you've heard of Joseph before. His story is found in the book of Genesis, and it's a rather lengthy story, so I'm going to try to summarize it to the best of my ability, but all of the context is necessary in order for us to get to the statement that he makes at the end of his life. Joseph is one of 12 brothers. He's the second to youngest, and he's absolutely loved by his dad. Um, Some would dare say that Joseph was the favorite in his family. Uh, The reason that many people believe that and the reason that, honestly, his brothers believed that he was his his dad's favorite was because his dad gave him this jacket that none of his other brothers got. Some people know it as his Technicolor dream coat, but I believe in 2020 it would have definitely been a Nike jacket. 100% would not have been Adidas because Christians don't wear Adidas. And so Joseph gets this uh, Nike jacket from his dad or his Technicolor dream coat. And as he gets this jacket, his brothers' hate for him begin to rise. They already thought he was the favorite, but now the jacket confirms it. Well, if that wasn't bad enough, it actually gets worse because after Joseph gets the jacket, he starts having these dreams. And what he sees in these dreams is that his brothers and his, honestly, his entire family will eventually bow down to him, that he will reign over his brothers. And he begins to share these dreams with his brothers. And the more that he would share the dreams, the more that they began to hate him. And the hate grew to a point that eventually they see Joseph coming over a hill one day. And they go, oh, there goes that dreamer. Let's put an end to his dreams. They take Joseph and they put him in a cistern or a well. And their plan is to leave him there for dead. But one of the brothers steps in and and rather than leaving him there for dead, they decide let's take him out of the well and let's sell him into slavery. So Joseph is sold to these Egyptian slave traders. He's taken to Egypt and he's sold to a man by the name of Potiphar. Now Potiphar is this kind of government official in Egypt. And when Joseph gets to Potiphar's house, things seem to be going a little bit better for him. Everything that he's touching is favored. All of his work is going well. And Joseph is working really hard and eventually makes himself uh, kind of the top of the totem pole in Potiphar's home. He's overseeing everything in Potiphar's state. It seems like things are going well for Joseph. The problem is that Potiphar had a wife. And Potiphar's wife, to use 2020 language, was, let's just say, um, thirsty. Joseph was tall, dark, and handsome, and she was looking for a glass of chocolate milk. And so this combination didn't work out too well for Joseph. Over and over and over again, Potiphar's wife comes on to Joseph. And every time that she does, Joseph says no. And because of the rejection, she gets so frustrated that she eventually goes to her husband, Potiphar, and says, hey, I don't know if you know this, but Joseph has been coming on to me when it was really the other way around. In anger, Potiphar makes the decision to throw Joseph in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. And Joseph is now sitting in prison for something that he has not done when some relationships begin to form. Joseph gains favor with the guards in the jail. He gains favor with some of the other prisoners. And and these relationships ultimately lead to a moment where two of the prisoners come to Joseph with a favor. These two guys were uh, former staff members of Pharaoh in Egypt. One was his former cupbearer. The other was his former baker. The job of the cupbearer was to drink anything that the, cup was, that the king was going to drink before he drank it, make sure it wasn't poison. So honestly, if you think about it, it isn't really a very good job. And then the baker's job is, well, you know, to bake. Both of them had found a way to frustrate Pharaoh and now have found themselves in prison. And they come to Joseph with these dreams, dreams that they're having that they can't interpret. They don't know what they mean. So Joseph listens to both of their dreams and he tells them what they mean. He says to the cupbearer, hey, your dream means that in three days you're actually going to get out of prison. And you're going to get your old job back. You're going to go back to working for Pharaoh. And he says to the cupbearer, he says, hey, when you go back to working for Pharaoh, could you actually do me a favor? Would you tell him that there's a guy named Joseph who's in jail right now for crimes that he didn't commit and see if maybe he'll let me out? The cupbearer agrees and three days go by and he gets out of jail and he goes back to working for Pharaoh. Now he tells the baker, hey, here's what your dream means. Your dream means that in three days you're actually going to die. You're gonna be impaled by the stake and you're gonna be eaten alive by birds. And exactly what Joseph predicted happened. Three days go by and the baker is killed. Cupbearer gets his job back. Baker is killed. And now the moment we've all been waiting for. Will the cupbearer make the request of Joseph? The answer no. The cupbearer gets out of jail and completely forgets about Joseph. And it leads to an additional two years that Joseph spends in prison. The only reason that Joseph ever gets out of jail is because Pharaoh begins to have dreams of his own, dreams that he can't figure out what they mean. And so he starts asking the city, hey, bring in the magicians, bring in the prophets, bring in anyone who can help me understand these dreams, but nobody can figure it out. And it's in that moment that the cupbearer remembered, oh, there's a guy, his name's Joseph, he's in prison. And I bet he can help. So they go and they get Joseph. They bring him to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asks Joseph to interpret his dreams. Now, what I'm going to say next could be a whole other sermon for a whole other time. We don't have that much time, so I'm not going to go into it. But what Joseph says to Pharaoh is profound. He says this, I can't do what you're asking me to do. But my God can. It's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother time. I can't, but he can. And the reason I think that's significant enough for us to just pause for a minute is because some of us in this season are trying to lean on our own strength and our own understanding when really what we should be leaning on is the sovereignty, the grace, the knowledge, the power, and the the willingness to move on our behalf of our God. I can't, but he can. After saying this, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He tells them what it means is that seven years of famine are coming, but following the seven, or prior to the seven years of famine, there'd be seven years of plenty. Seven years would then have so much harvest and grain that they wouldn't know what to do with. And so Joseph's recommendation is to store up as much grain as possible so that when the famine comes, they're prepared and they can not only feed their people, but they can also take care of all of the surrounding nations. Essentially what Joseph says to Pharaoh is, if you do this, you will earn favor with your people and you'll gain influence with the surrounding nations. Pharaoh's so impressed by Joseph's plan that he actually promotes Joseph to second in command in in all of Egypt, essentially the prime minister. And all of the surrounding nations do indeed come and ask for help when the famine hits, including, watch this, his own brothers. I'll fast forward to the end of the story. There's this beautiful moment, right after Joseph's dad has now died, And his brothers are afraid that he will get revenge on them, that he makes the statement to his brothers. This is huge. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says this, you intended to harm me. His brothers who had sold him into slavery are now standing in front of him. This is the moment that he can get even. This is the moment where he can lay down the hammer. He looks at his brothers and he goes, what you did was wrong. What you did was evil. What you did was malicious. You intended to harm me, but God. I love that. Because anywhere you see but God in the scriptures, you know that there's some good news on the way. Here's what Joseph says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to hurt me. You intended to harm me. What you did was wrong. But my God, my God used it for good. And had he not, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. Right now, I would not have been able to help you, my family. We wouldn't have been able to help the the nation of Egypt. And we wouldn't have been able to help the surrounding cities. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Now, I read this story and then read this statement. And the question that comes to my mind is simple. It's how. How is it that Joseph could make such a profound statement at the end of his life after everything that had come his way. I mean, if you really go back through the story, you know that the story of Joseph is riddled with adversity, right? His brothers try to kill him. He's accused of a crime that he didn't commit, sleeping with his boss's wife. He's sold into slavery. I mean, come on. He's thrown into prison. He's forgotten in prison for two years by the guy that he got out of prison. I mean, all throughout the story of Joseph, there is adversity after adversity after adversity after adversity. There's lemon after lemon after lemon after lemon. But at the end of the story, Joseph makes this statement. You intended to harm me, but God meant it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. How could he do that? I think the answer is simple. It's one word, perspective. That Joseph had a different perspective than you and me. That Joseph saw the lemons of his life different than the way that you and I see the adversity we face. You know, there's this word um, that we use a lot in church. And a lot of us use it and we don't even fully understand what it means. Um, The word is repent. Repent. And it's funny, like, I'll stand outside of a football game and I'll hear a pastor on the corner yelling at people, like, repent, repent, repent. Or you hear, like, an angry preacher preach and he says, you need to repent right now. You need to repent. Repentance, repent, 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 repent. And because of their tone, maybe the context in which you're hearing it, for most of us, we've misunderstood the word repent for a very long time. This word's important for where we're going this morning because repentance is actually this Greek word, metanoia. And that Greek word metanoia, all it means is a change of mind. It means a a new perspective. It means seeing things differently. See, for so many of us, we believe that repentance is, I'm sorry. Repentance is, oh, my bad. Repentance is, ah, that one's on me. Sorry, messed it up. You gotta understand. Repentance isn't as simple as I'm sorry. It doesn't end there. Repentance is, oh, no, 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 no. I messed up, but it's not just that I messed up. It's that I now see it differently. It's that I have a new perspective. It's, oh, God, I see it the way that you see it. And because I see it the way that you see it, I never want to go back to who I used to be. I never want to go back to living the way that I used to live. I never want to go back to that pattern of behavior, or that way that I saw those people, or the way that I treated those people. I never want to go back because now I see it differently. I change my mind. I think maybe what's necessary for us in 2020 is that we would stop asking God to take away the adversity of our life, and stop asking God to remove the lemons, but rather that we would shift our perspective that we'd change our mind. That maybe we'd repent for the way that we've seen these. I want to fast forward us about a thousand years, a little bit over that actually. I want to take us to this statement that was written by the Apostle Paul. It's interesting to me that what Paul writes in Romans 8.28 is not too different than what Joseph wrote or what Joseph said in Genesis 50.20. I believe these two passages will help shift our perspective. This is huge. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, and we know... I love this. I love that he says, and we know. Because what Paul is saying in this moment is, hey, just so you know, this isn't up for debate. This isn't a matter of opinion. This is just who our God is. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. If you're anything like me, you've actually misread that verse for most of your life. Because for me, the way that I've always read it is like this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to my purpose. See, when things go my way, then I know that God is good. When I have the house I want, God's good. When I get the promotion that I want, God is good. When things are going my way, God is good. And I wonder how many of us have believed this to be true. Have my kids finally behave the way that I want them to behave, God's good. Got the promotion, God's good. New house, God is good, amen. New car, God's good. But the moment that things don't happen according to our plan and our purpose, then the goodness of God is up for debate. Hear me this morning, church. God is good, period. His goodness is not determined by our circumstance, His goodness is determined. By his purpose. And so if we're going to understand the goodness of God, then we first need to understand his purpose for you and for me. So what is God's purpose for us? Well, it's really simple. It's twofold. Um, and hopefully this will help you understand God's will for your life a little bit better. The first is this. Is God's purpose for you is to be conformed into the image of his son. Or, or to make it even simpler and plain and easier to understand, God's purpose for you is to be more like Jesus. That's his purpose for you to look more and more like Jesus each and every day and secondarily his purpose his second purpose for you is this is to make disciples That's the last thing that Jesus asked his followers to do before he left the planet Earth. He said, hey, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's purpose, his plan, his will for you is simple. To be more like Jesus and to lead more people to know Jesus. Okay, so then we take that, knowing that that's God's purpose for us, and we put it back into Romans 8.28. And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called to be more like Jesus and to lead more people to know Jesus. Jesus. Do you see it? Because if you don't, I'd hope you catch it. Y'all, this is massive for us. This is huge. Because when we read the verse the way that it's meant to be read, that the purpose of God is for us to lead more people to know Jesus and to be more like Jesus, then we understand that his goodness is based on those two facts. His goodness is based on those two opportunities that we become more like Jesus and we lead more people to know Jesus. So what does that mean for you and for me? It means this, any circumstance, situation, adversity that comes your way that allows you to be more like Jesus and allows you to lead more people to know Jesus is good. I'll say it again. Any circumstance or situation that allows you to become more like Jesus and allows you to lead more people to know Jesus is actually really good. Now, I hope in saying that, it doesn't feel like I'm diminishing the severity of your circumstance, I'm not. I know that it's hard, I know that it's painful, I know that the lemons that you have been handed are unfair and it's a difficult season that you're walking through. And by no means do I want to say that it's not painful, it's not difficult, and it's not hard. But I just need you to hear me. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's not good. You know why I believe this so passionately? It's because every year around April we celebrate a holiday as Christians. We call it Easter. But just a few days before Easter we celebrate another day. We call it Good Friday. And the irony of Good Friday is this. Good Friday is the day that we celebrate the most excruciating death known to humankind. Where Jesus would go to a cross and die for our sin by suffocating to death. But yet in hindsight, we know that it was good. Why? Because just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not good. And the hardest moment of Jesus' life is the thing that brought us salvation and relationship with God. New perspective. Maybe it's time to repent for the way that we've seen the adversity of our life. Started this message by saying I wanted to do three things. Um, One, that we would read the story of a man who knew what it was like to face adversity. We've done that. Second, that we would read an absurd but profound statement from the end of his life. We've done that as well. The last thing I said we'd do is we'd look at three questions, um, three questions that hopefully will shift our perspective and allow us to see our adversity or the lemons of our life a little bit differently. We don't have a lot of time left. We have about two minutes. So I'm gonna fly through this. If you haven't written anything down yet, you'll wanna write these down. Three questions that I believe you should ask yourself as we continue to navigate the adversity of 2020. The first question is this, what's in my control? What's in my control? I think it's fair to say that most of us in the room believe that God is in control. We believe the sovereignty of God. And that is a good thing to believe because it is true. God is in control. While everything feels out of control, he is still in control. But can I tell you the danger of that belief for us as American Christians? Is that while that is 100% true, the way that we respond to that truth can be detrimental to you and me. Because for a lot of us, what we've done is we've said, hey, God is in control, so that means I have no responsibility. God's in control, so I have no part to play. God's in control, so, hey, you got this, and I'll just wait for you to figure it all out. The problem is it's not what we really do, is it? No, what we, what we really do is we go, hey, God's in control. I'm just going to sit over here and worry and be anxious and self-medicate and not be able to sleep and not fully trust God. See, the reality that God is in control does not void us from responsibility because if you actually pay close attention to the scriptures, while God is in control, God has always been a God of invitation and participation. And so God is in control, but he invites you to play a part in his story. From Genesis to the disciples, the invitation has been on the table. There's something in our control. There is work to be done on our part. So, what does it look like to truly trust God in this season? I love the way that Paul writes this in Philippians four six and seven. He says this. He says, um, "Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God." So, essentially, Paul says, "Hey, release your concerns, release the things that are out of your control to God." But he does not end there. He goes on and he says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think of such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. So Paul says, hey, you want to know what it looks like to have trust in God in this season? You want to know what it looks like to experience the peace of God in a crazy, chaotic world? I'll tell you what it looks like. By prayer and petition, release the things that are out of your control to God, but practice the things that are in your ability to control. Think of the things that are pure, that are lovely, that are right, that are admirable, that are excellent, that are praiseworthy. Do the things that are in your control, release the things that are out of your control, and in doing so, you find more peace. So the first question to ask, the season of adversity, is what's in my control? What has God invited you to participate in, in this season? The second question is this, how can I grow from this? How can I grow from this? I want to give you two words to write down here. These two words are this. One is community. The second is obedience. We're going to talk a lot more about obedience next week, so I'm not going to spend any time on that this week. But I want to take a moment just to talk about this word community uh, and give you a few things that you should write down that I hope will be helpful to you. The first thing I want to say is this, is that second to Jesus, the best thing that God has given you and me is us. Second to Jesus, the best thing that God has given us is us. You were not meant to carry the weight of the adversity that you're facing on your own. You're not built to do that. That's why Paul wrote what he wrote in Galatians 6, two. He says this, he says, carry each other's burdens and in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. In this way, you are loving to your neighbor and you're also loving to God. We are not meant to carry the weight of our burdens and our responsibilities and our adversity on our own. We have to do this together. Social distancing does not mean social isolation. We gotta do this together. So let me encourage you, keep meeting as a a small group. If you can't meet in person, do it digitally. And some of you have given up on meeting together in this season, start back this week. You cannot carry the weight of this adversity on your own. If you're not comfortable attending church in person yet, keep watching online. Keep giving, keep participating, because the body of Christ does not function without you. But not only that, every single week that you decide, I'm too busy or I'm too tired or I don't feel like watching online this week, you are choosing to disconnect from the body of Christ. And when you disconnect, you live in isolation. You cannot carry the weight of the adversity on your own. Lastly, stay connected to people who bring you life. Stay connected to people who believe that their marriage is awesome because it will cause you to see your marriage in a different way. Stay connected to people who make sound financial decisions because it will cause you to live and manage your finances in a different way. Stay connected to people who breathe life into you because these days are heavy and we cannot do it on our own. The last question I want to give you is simply this. Who can I help because of this? Who can I help because of this? You know what I love about lemons? As sour as they are, they also uniquely position us to be the light of Jesus in places we may have never been before, and places we'll never be again. You now, I watch a lot of HGTV with my wife, um, and I've noticed this thing that, like, whenever they finish like a, a massive renovation, they finish decorating the house when you go into the kitchen, you always see this. White walls, white tile, white sink, farmhouse usually, all white everything. And then on the table, every single time, start paying attention to this on HGTV, there is a bowl and it's filled with lemons. You know why? Because they brighten up the room. Hear me, church. We have the opportunity to brighten up every room we're in because we carry with us the light of Jesus. The lemons of your life uniquely position you to bring a light into a dark place, to comfort others the way that you've been comforted, to love others the way that you've been loved, to serve others the way that Jesus has served you. This is an adversity It's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. I love the way that Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says this, he says he comforts us in all of our troubles, God does, so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we're able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. So how do we turn lemons into lemonade? We shift our perspective, we change our mind, and we take the time to ask the right questions so we can get the most out of the season. What's in my control? How can I grow from this? Who can I help because of this? That's the way that we turn lemons into lemonade. Hey, before we wrap up, I just want to say one last thing. And I really just want to take a moment to speak to anyone who's in the room or who's watching online, and you're in a season of adversity right now. It feels like life is throwing lemon after lemon after lemon your way, and you are tired and you're ready to give up. I just want to say this to you and we'll be done. Turn the page. Turn the page. Gerald, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. The story that you're living right now is not the end of the story. It's just a chapter. And you, with the help of your Heavenly Father, have the ability to turn the page and begin writing a new story. Because the beauty is the next page is blank. And you get to decide the story you will tell your kids about how you overcame the season. You get to decide the story that people will tell of your life, about the season that you have navigated, about the way that you've handled 2020. You get to, with the help of your heavenly father, move on and write a new story. It is not over. It's just a chapter. And I can say that with such confidence because when Jesus went to the grave, they thought the story was over. But three days later, he didn't just turn a page. He rolled away a stone, and he walked out of that grave victorious, and he said, the story of God is not over. It's actually just begun. My friends, the lemons of your life can be turned into sweet, sweet, sweet lemonade. The story is not over. Let's turn the page. What's in my control? How can I grow from this? Who can I help because of this? Father, thank you that while you are in control, you do invite us to play a part in the story. That thank you that even though we face trials and adversity and lemons in life, that the testing of our faith does lead to perseverance And that perseverance, when it finishes its work, leads us to be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That, Father, everything that comes our way can be used for good. So, one, I just ask that you would forgive me, forgive us, for the way that we've seen the lemons of our life, for the way that we've seen the adversity that we're in. But secondly, Father, would you renew our mind? Would you help us to see the way that you see so we can live the way that you've called us to live? We love you and we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you're uh, joining us in the room, thanks so much for being with us. We're so excited to be back together. We're gonna continue to do anything and everything that we can to keep you guys safe, but also be able to gather together. So we love you and we'll see you back here next week uh, for week two of When Life Gives You Lemons. Peace.